Today's show is brought to you by Hulu. Don't miss the new limited series on Hulu, The Dropout. The Dropout is the story of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, an unbelievable tale of ambition and fame gone terribly wrong. Starring Amanda Seyfried as Elizabeth Holmes, the series goes beyond what has been published to understand the complicated woman behind the notorious scandal. It unravels her story from childhood to present day, as she goes from Stanford dropout to self-made billionaire to alleged criminal. Catch new episodes of The Dropout, Thursdays on Hulu. Hello and welcome to The Powers That Be, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. Welcome. First, I'll be talking to Matt Bellany about Hollywood's response to Russia and why you might have to pay a premium to see the Batman movie this weekend. After that, we'll be joined by Julia Yaffe to talk about the bloody state of play in Ukraine and Vladimir Putin's all-or-nothing approach. And finally, Dylan Byers will swing by to talk about CNN's new boss and whether this means the network is pivoting back to hard news. These are the great sort of conversations you can only have with expert insider reporters who really know what's going on. I hope that you enjoy The Powers That Be. Joining me now on The Powers That Be is Matt Bellany, our man in Hollywood. Matt, are you you upset that Dennis Miller is leaving RT, the network RT. Are you heartbroken? Uh, I I can't say I've consumed much Dennis Miller content since Weekend (laughs) Update in the late 80s, early 90s. But you know what? More power to him. Actually, you know what? I liked his HBO show in the 90s. Um, He's one of those comics that kind of, he got older, took a turn for the right, and then sort of disappeared from my radar. Um, Apparently has done very well for himself. But uh, nice to see him drawing the line at Russian propaganda. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, for people listening, that's in reference to RT, the flagship Russian news channel, which somehow to this day is still distributed across the U.S. despite being both soft and overt Russian propaganda. But Dennis Miller uh, was not anymore. Many, not anymore. Not anymore. Nice to see no, people taking a stand against Russian propaganda. It only took an invasion of an innocent country to do that. Well, on that note, I want to ask you, I mean, this war isn't just happening in Eastern Europe. There's information war going on everywhere on social media. There's obviously staged videos and out of context videos flying around the social media platforms, but this is having an impact across economies. What's happening in Hollywood? How is Hollywood responding to Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine? It's pretty interesting because we have seen a pretty swift and unanimous shunning of Russia by the entertainment industry, which doesn't like to do this kind of thing. I mean, you're talking to an industry that has actively courted China over the past decade and a half, despite everything going on in that country. Generally speaking, the entertainment companies like to be considered neutral and they will distribute their product if they can. But starting with Disney this past week, we saw one by one the major studios pull out of Russia and say that they will not distribute their movies there. Specifically this weekend, The Batman was supposed to debut in Russia, and that will not do so. Um, Warner Brothers, 
I think that's a big hit for them. I mean, the, the last Batman movie, Dark Knight Rises, did about $17 million in Russia. Not a huge number, but these days when movie studios are trying to scrape every last dollar, that does make a difference. But I think it's it makes sense. I mean, first of all, not only do they want to join the chorus of people pushing Putin to reconsider his actions, they know the impact of a lot of pissed off Russians if they're not going to get to see their Batman movie, but also... I think it became, it's going to become difficult now that the SWIFT system, the financial system, has been denied to Russia that you don't even know if you're going to get your money back from these distrib- distribution platforms there. And that's a big issue for these studios when they're thinking about you know, spending the money to put their movie out in Russia, whether they're going to get their money back. And it's it's not just studios. I mean, uh, uh, the big social media platforms, uh, YouTube, Facebook, and TikTok, banned RT and Sputnik from distribution in Europe. What do you know about that? I think that makes sense. I mean, these social media companies are really under fire for their actions these days. I mean, every little thing that Facebook does gets attention. YouTube um, has a a global presence. So in this kind of situation, you know, these are ad-driven platforms. They have to consider what the look is of continuing to distribute content there. And you know how people have become addicted to these platforms. The goal here is to make it uncomfortable for people. As much as you don't want to hurt innocent Russians who may not be for this war, you want to put the pressure on the country to put pressure on their leaders. And this is going to do it. If you're not going to have access to YouTube or Facebook, um, you're going to be pretty upset. So I have a I have a oligarch question. Are you ready? Please. My friend Scott Conroy is, is developing a movie about uh, Joe Lowe, who is a Malaysian businessman. Oh, I, I know Joe Lowe. I know him very well. Uh, part of his money laundering efforts or alleged money laundering efforts was an entertainment company called Red Granite, which had quite a run in the mid 2000s, you know, or about 2010 area. Um, was doing deals with Leo DiCaprio, was making movies. They were running ads in the trades about how great they were, throwing parties. Um, and then it all came apart. Exactly. And, and, and Joe Lowe was, was consulting for 1MDB, the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund, and, and defrauded them. I think he defrauded them for like billions of dollars. And, and part of that was financing <laughs> the, the, some of the movies you're talking about. Wolf of Wall Street was the big one. Exactly, yeah. Ironically, the movie about you know bilking people out of their money was financed by this guy. And it included some pretty funny gifts to Leo DiCaprio, if I recall, Art and wine and all the things that Leo loves um, came back to haunt him. So are there any Russian oligarchs out here financing movies? I mean, I feel like if you are a Russian oligarch, your big goal in life is really just to get out of Russia and go like party in L.A. and London and travel the world on your yacht and date models and own soccer teams. Is there oligarch presence here in Los Angeles? There is. I mean, the big one that most people associate with these kinds of industries is Roman Abramovich, who announced this week that he will be selling the Chelsea Football Club, his kind of showpiece soccer team. Um, But he's got investments all over. The one who does not consider himself an oligarch, but his money has been tied to Russian, let's just say, industry, is Len Blavatnik who has a company called Access Industries, which is the majority owner of Warner Music, one of the major music companies. Um, he's got a bunch of other investments and things as well. But And, and let me be clear, he does not consider himself a, an oligarch. He, I believe, is a U.S. citizen, but and he was born in Ukraine, actually. 
but he has had ties to Russians in power for a long time. And, you know, he's heavily invested in the entertainment industry. Um, so, yeah, you do see it pop up. And also just like real estate and the party scene and like, you know, any any town that is a magnet for rich guys is going to be a magnet for oligarchs. So, yeah, how I mean, how how is this going to play out in the long run? Are studios just not going to film in Russia or distribute movies in Russia moving forward? Well, it's interesting because Netflix has paused its productions in Russia and they're one of the big streaming companies that is trying to have a locally produced content push in most big markets, including Russia. So it'll be interesting to see how or when that restarts or if it does, and depending on how long this war keeps going on. But I think that the other, the major studios will be in a bind. Summer movie season is coming up. That's when the big international blockbusters all start to open and you know this is a big market that is going to be off limits i think politically for a while you mentioned the batman and uh that that movie is actually called the batman it's not batman this is the latest batman is that like is that like uh the ohio state university it's just like that it's just like the ohio state (laughs) university (laughs) i don't think bruce where did bruce wayne go to college i think not there Definitely go to Ohio State. He strikes me as like a guy who went to like one of those Northeastern liberal arts colleges that Brady Sinellis wrote about, you know, and did a lot of cocaine um, and then grew up. But yeah, the latest the latest Batman movie stars Robert Pattinson. He's he's Batman, Bruce Wayne, Zoe Kravitz, Paul Dano is the Riddler. You just told me before we got on that. And th- this was interesting to me. If you want to go see the Batman this weekend, again, not in Moscow or St. Petersburg, but. Uh, if you want to go see it in, um, you know, Richmond, Virginia, you're going to have to pay more for, to see the Batman than you would to see another movie at the very same theater. Is that right? Uh, that's if you go to an AMC theater, which is the largest chain in America. AMC announced this past week that they are going to institute what it is calling variable pricing meaning certain blockbuster type movies will cost more than average movies. Now, you could make the argument that that's actually not Variable pricing, that's just a surcharge for blockbusters because they haven't said that they are going to be lowering prices for some other movies. But this concept is something that's been around for a while and is actually pretty common in Europe and other markets for movies. And if you think about it, variable pricing exists in almost every aspect of the entertainment industry, music, in Broadway, in uh, you know outside of the industry, in, in airlines, higher demand situations get higher prices and lower demand, you charge less. So it makes sense that this would migrate over to movies where there are certain movies that are in very high demand. If you look at what Spider-Man No Way Home has grossed, it's you know almost $2 billion. And that is very different than most movies in theaters. It's just the demand is lower. But studios have resisted this because they have not wanted to put a price on quality, meaning all movies are movies regardless of whether it's a $2 million indie drama or a $200 million superhero movie like Batman, everything has cost the same. And I think what we're going to start to see is we're going to start to see the variable pricing, surcharge, whatever you want to call it model, start to migrate over to movies and big movies are going to cost more. Friday and Saturday nights are going to cost more if they don't already in your market. And you know maybe they'll make it up with... Tuesday night bargain nights, maybe certain movies that are have been in theaters for a while or are lower demand are going to cost less. What is likely going to happen, in my opinion, is that it's just going to cost more for the movies everyone wants to see. 
Here's a harebrained theory and tell me why I'm wrong. Why don't studios or theaters, this would, this would obviously imply some sort of like goodwill rather than bottom line business sense, but why wouldn't you charge more for like a prestige independent movie because the college educated like film dorks would be more likely to pay one or two dollars more to see Oscar bait rather than like a mass market movie. And you could use that money maybe to help fund independent filmmaking. Is that me being too idealistic? (laughs) Well, the exhibitors don't fund the movie making process. The way the movie business works is by government decree, the people who show the movies are different from the people who make the movies. And you can't own a theater. You couldn't until recently. And the chains are separate from the studios. But I do like that idea of, you know, if you're catering to a more well-heeled audience, then maybe you could charge more. It's sort of the equivalent of going to the symphony or going to see Katy Perry. Like there are cheap tickets for Katy Perry, but if you're going to go to the symphony, you probably are going to pay more. Although that's not always the case. And we're seeing in the music industry right now, prices are going way, way up. You know, there was a report this last week that they anticipate, Live Nation anticipates 20% increases in concert tickets this year. Combination of pent-up demand from the shutdown to, to be honest, like they claim that tickets are underpriced. That there is such demand and low availability for these artists that you go onto the secondary market and the prices are way higher. You go to StubHub or wherever that they should be raising their prices to capture some of that. It's a whole, there's a whole science to ticket pricing and, you know, algorithms now determine whether there's some, you know, a a ticket is in high demand or low demand, just like if you're buying a seat on an airplane. And I think that some of that is going to come to the movie business In, in Europe. You can pay more to sit center of the theater rather than front row. If you're willing to sit front row, it might cost less than if you're willing to, you know, want to sit in the prime seats. And that's a concept that doesn't really exist in the U.S. because we've all it's been this democratized medium, the movies, where everybody pays the same price, everybody goes in, and then, you know, you get your seat. Now you can reserve and do things like that. But we haven't seen the sophistication that you see elsewhere. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated with the fact that that doesn't exist yet. Uh, before I let you go, Matt, you wrote a story for Puck this week about Larry David. And <laughs> Larry David apparently has a sort of biopic in the works. And to be clear, for fans of Curb Your Enthusiasm, this is not Young Larry. Uh, this is a documentary about Larry David's career that was supposed to come out on HBO Max. But I guess Larry saw the cut and didn't like it. Is it, is it Are we ever going to see this? Like, is he does he have final cut on, on, on this? Who's making it? Tell, tell, tell us more about it. Yeah, he and this does sound like a plot of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which I have been reminded. <laughs> totally does. I've been reminded on Twitter was actually the plot of the original pilot for Curb Your Enthusiasm, which became the series, which is that Larry didn't want to do a special and he tried to sabotage it before it aired. So he agreed to do this two part documentary, which is basically an interview with him that Larry Charles, the director who has worked on Curb Your Enthusiasm and a bunch of other things, um, pitched him and he said, okay, I'll participate. And apparently it was supposed to be very small. It wasn't even going to necessarily air on HBO. But then as Larry Charles put it together, it started to become bigger. And he's like, oh, let's do a two-parter on HBO. HBO said, great. And they actually released a trailer for this thing. And it's pretty funny. You know, it's very much Larry David humor. And it chronicles his time with Seinfeld and his days as a struggling stand-up. 
And then lo and behold, the day before it was supposed to air, I got a tip that said, you know, I'm hearing Larry pulled his own documentary. I said, that can't be real. That sounds like a fake stunt for Curb. Turned out to be true. He didn't like the final product. He thought it would be better if it had a, if the Q&A was in front of an audience, if there was an audience involved. And he said, you know what, if we're going to do a big two-part thing on my life, let's actually do it right. Let's make it good. Let's not do this. Of course, Larry Charles was not too happy about that. He was apparently annoyed, caused a little bit of a rift between them. I don't know where they stand right now. But the bottom line is this project has been indefinitely shelved. Um, we'll see if it ever happens. I, if I was Larry Charles, I would be cranky just to be forever known as the lesser Larry. But I, I feel like fans of Larry David are not going to be disappointed uh, to wait for this to be as good as possible because I feel like the, you, it's hard to find a more beloved figure for, for being such a curmudgeon than Larry David and his fan base is pretty dedicated. Yeah, this is pretty on brand for him. And, you know, the <laughs> the funny thing is that he just did that crypto commercial in the Super Bowl, um, which is very funny about him throughout the you know different time periods and inventions. And one of his producers did an interview saying that, you know, they've been approached by different companies to do ads for years with Larry and he'll go down the road and he'll be like, oh, let's do it. Let's do this, this, this. I think this is funny. Invariably, the ad company would come back to him and be like, oh, we're thinking more of this. You know, would you rather do this? And he'd be like, oh, you know what? That's fine. I'm just not going to do it. And he would walk away <laughs> from these ad companies like in the middle of talking. So it's not a surprise that he would see his own documentary and be like, you know what? Let's just not do it. That is very on brand. You're exactly right. I think when, when you've made hundreds of millions of dollars from Seinfeld and you just, you know, you built a persona that has essentially become a television star based on a version of yourself. I think that's you can get away with doing that. Yeah, no, 5000 percent. All right, Matt, thanks for your insights. As always, I will talk to you next week. Okay, bye-bye. Coming up, I talked to Julia Yaffe about the situation in Ukraine and why she calls this an existential war for Vladimir Putin. As a reminder, today's show is brought to you by Hulu. Don't miss the new limited series on Hulu, The Dropout. The Dropout is the story of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, an unbelievable tale of ambition and fame gone terribly wrong. Starring Amanda Seyfried as Elizabeth Holmes, the series goes beyond what has been published to understand the complicated woman behind the notorious scandal. It unravels her story from childhood to present day, as she goes from Stanford dropout to self-made billionaire to alleged criminal. Catch new episodes of The Dropout, Thursdays on Hulu. I'm joined now by Julia Yaffe, Puck's resident expert on Eastern Europe, specifically Russia. And she's been all over the place explaining this conflict to us, to the world. As of this taping, which is Wednesday afternoon, uh, the Ukrainian city of Kherson, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, has fallen to the Russians. And Julia, I, you know, I want to ask you about this in particular because... It sort of felt like over this first week of the conflict with the heroics of President Zelensky, um, his persona on social media, and the tone of social media here in the West, there's been this kind of wish casting about Ukraine. You know, after the first night of the attack, it felt like Ukraine was beating back Russian forces. There's just been this optimistic tone about Ukraine possibly fighting this back. 
And we're starting to see Russia just creep in ever so slowly. Putin is sending more and more forces at Ukraine. You know, where where is your head at in terms of can Ukraine stop this? Are you one of the folks who think this could turn into a years-long insurgency? Do you think that Ukraine could fall <laughs> imminently? Um because it just feel it just generally feels like this is much more grim and difficult than some of the early tone and tenor of, of what we saw on social media. Like, hey, that funny guy on the tractor stole a Russian tank. Hey, look at these demoralized Russian soldiers. Um, it just it I feel like that's papering over the seriousness and the horror that we could be facing in the coming days. Am I wrong about that? No, you're absolutely right. And that's been the fear among Pretty much every Russia watcher, every defense specialist, everybody I'm talking to in the U.S. and European governments, I think for a lot of Americans, this was like, you know, a Hollywood action movie. The bad guys invade, there's a hero, and this come from behind underdog victory and the credits roll in less than two hours. It was fun to watch all those videos because the Ukrainian spirit and resolve have been amazing. And to me, they were amazing precisely because of what they were staring down. I mean, Russia is huge, and its military arsenal is huge. And, you know, what we saw over the weekend was only a fraction of what they had of what Russia had gathered on the border with Ukraine. And it was clear that to all of us watching, it was like, there's no way this is going to end well for Ukraine because Putin wants Ukraine. We already know that. This is not about NATO. This is about subjugating Ukraine in its entirety. And he's not going to take the L, take an L on this. You know, he's not going to allow himself to be humiliated now that the stakes are so high, now that the, now that Western sanctions have basically nuked the Russian economy he's not going to let himself be beaten by what he sees as a small fake country all weekend. I was talking to people and we were all saying like, here come the carpet bombings. Here come the thermobaric weapons. Here come vision. Here come visions of Grozny and Aleppo and just indiscriminate shelling of civilians, which is what is starting to happen just because Putin cannot lose this. And then from that, I don't know, it can go any number of horrible ways. Either Ukraine falls completely and is denazified in the Russian term, which means, you know, we, we've heard about those kill lists. That means people are people in the government are going to be killed. That means, I mean, probably mass repressions, political repressions. I'm thinking like imprisoning, torturing, executing huge numbers of Ukrainians, which is what happened in Chechnya, which is what happened in Syria. And if not, also a Chechen or Syrian-style scenario where for years and years, it takes Russia years and years to subjugate the place. And both are horrible, just different flavors of awful, awful, awful. It felt like before the invasion, there was a notion that Russia could come in, move quickly, depose Zelensky, and then sort of install like a pro-Russia leader like a Yanukovych type. I guess what you're saying is that doesn't feel like much of an option now. <laughs> you know, it's it's it feels all or nothing. This will be a um, bloody total subjugation of Ukraine unless Ukraine and the West can find a way 
to beat it back. But that doesn't feel like it's necessarily going to be the case anytime soon. I mean, I believe we talked about this on this very podcast that I think this idea that they would install a Yanukovych-like leader was probably the plan in Russia, but it was founded on very serious miscalculations, which is that A, Ukrainians are basically Russians and they're not. B, that Ukrainians would greet Russians as liberators and they have not. And C, that they hate their government and would like it to be replaced, which they do not. And all of us watching this were thinking, okay, if they try to do like a quick strike, a kind of very quick blitzkrieg, knock out the, uh, decapitate the government, install their own candidate, they can't just leave because the Ukrainians won't take it. And it's a country of 40 some million people and they won't, you know, they fought too hard for this. They've already had two revolutions. They're going to topple a Moscow installed government as soon as Russia leaves. So everything was pointing to an occupation and an occupation involves brute force and political repression. The West has thrown some of the most serious sanctions any of us can remember at at Putin, his cronies and Russia generally. Is there a world where the economy in Russia and the restrictions on travel are so bad that the oligarchs or the military like come at Putin and say, Hey man, you got to stop this. You got to go. Cause it doesn't, you know, I was texting with a, with a college friend about this recently and he was enamored as you and I were with, with the bravery of the protesters who were spilling into the streets in, in Moscow and St. Petersburg. But it doesn't like if Putin was ever to leave, it wouldn't be because of a people's revolution uh, from the bottom up that he's, it's just too, he has too much of a, iron fist grip on that country. But is there a, a world where the elites depose him because their lives are so shitty or is he just too powerful? So I don't, I don't know about any of those things. I don't, we haven't yet seen a revolution from the ground up in, in Russia. Although the kind of seizures of power that the kind that we saw in 1917 and then the collapse of the Soviet union that we saw in 1991 happened because there was such widespread discontent. And, you know, 1917 did begin with mass protests in St. Petersburg and elsewhere. And it was because there had already been three years of a disastrous war that nobody knew why they were fighting. And because uh, St. Petersburg had run out of food and fuel, and it was a really cold winter. And basically, women actually on Women's Day went out and started this whole thing. And it only kept going because the Tsar abdicated. So there has to be this kind of historically in Russia, what we've seen in the last hundred years is there has to be this kind of confluence of mass discontent on the ground and the elites willing to do something. I don't think the conditions are there yet. Um, We also don't know if it's going to follow that script. We also don't know if the oligarchs feel like their lot has been cast and they're going down with the ship. And I'm sure some of them do and some of them don't. The question is, do they have enough people to move to do something? Do they want to risk their neck? I think it has to get a lot worse. And I think it's going to get a lot worse very quickly. I mean, we're seeing the Russian economy basically be vaporized before our eyes. We're taping this on Wednesday. Uh, The Russian Central Bank already announced that 
Moscow stock markets won't open tomorrow, so that's the fourth straight day they'll be closed. They're trying to prop up the ruble, but it still keeps hitting new records in terms of how little it's worth. And that's with the central bank putting in a ton of money to support the currency, and that money will run out soon, um, in part because something like half the central bank's assets are have been frozen. I'm talking to friends in Russia, and they can't get money out of ATMs. People are fleeing the country. Some people are protesting. Some people are running. There's talk that the Duma, the Russian parliament, will vote tomorrow to impose martial law and impose a universal draft. I think people are talking about how there will very soon be shortages of vital goods because Russia, like Saudi Arabia, imports a lot of its basic goods and a lot of shipping companies are refusing to take goods bound for Russia because they just, they don't know who's sanctioned, who's not, who might be sanctioned. They don't, there was the idea that Russia would just fill the gap with oil exports because all this unrest is bumping up oil prices to record territory. But we're seeing a lot of people just don't want to buy Russian oil because they also, they don't know, they might be entangled with some somebody who's sanctioned. I mean, we have you have tankers full of Russian oil just sitting there and nobody will take them. And of course, the Chinese are like, we'll buy it, but at a steep discount. So there's talk that there will soon be food shortages, not just in Ukraine, but in Russia. And it's part of what is so unbelievably tragic about this. We've seen lots of coverage about Ukrainians uh, pushing west and trying to leave the country, you know, over half a million. I, I'm sure it'll be closer to a million within the next day. Where are Russians going? Russian citizens who are talking about leaving? Uh, they're going anywhere from just anecdotally from talking to friends. They're go- going to anywhere that will take them. It's becoming harder and harder hour by hour to leave. European airspace is closed to them. So it's hard to go anywhere in Europe. Aeroflot is banned by a bunch of countries. So first they have to go to a somewhat friendlier country like Azerbaijan or Kazakhstan or Turkey, and then go somewhere else from there. There's reports now that Russians, especially younger men, are being stopped at airports and being pulled aside for hours of questioning about how they feel about the war in Ukraine, how do they feel about the government, are they fleeing the draft, etc. So um, there's all this advice flying around on Russian social media about how to get out of the country safely. There's uh, talk that they might close the border and impose um, exit restrictions for certain categories of people like men of fighting age. It's changing by the hour. And uh, I'm getting increasingly frantic messages and calls. I mean, last night, a childhood friend from St. Petersburg called me sobbing. Uh, She has two kids. And she was like, I need to get out of here. I don't know what to do. My husband doesn't want to go. I can't, our money's all frozen. I don't know where to go, how to go. Like I have two kids. It's just, and I don't know what, you know, I don't know what to tell her. It's, um, it's awful. I I guess I I want you to sort of distill what, what Vladimir Putin declared on Sunday, which is that he was putting Russia's nuclear forces into something called special combat readiness. Um, the initial reports of this, as I read them in, in various newspapers were that this is sort of a diplomatic chess move. But, you know, the second round of conversation about it 
seemed a little more serious uh, and worrisome. Like how, how worried should we be here in America? How worried should anyone be that Russia could finally deploy nuclear weapons that, you know, haven't been used on planet Earth in 70 years? So I think we should be very worried. You know, when Putin declared war, he was already threatening nuclear retaliation. And then three days in to a conflict that uh, wasn't going his way, he threatened it again. And I think by this point, saying that, oh, this is a diplomatic chess move or this is him escalating to de-escalate, that should be out the window. If you say that, slap yourself. He gathered tens of thousands of soldiers and crazy amounts of material and hardware on the border with Ukraine. And there were people saying, oh, it's just to negotiate, blah, blah, blah. He'll never invade. That would be so crazy and foolish because it is crazy and foolish and it's not rational and it, and it would be a disaster and it is a disaster, but he didn't anyway. I think this is becoming existential for him and he cannot lose. And you know what freaked me out? Uh, there's a guy named Kisilov who is like Russia's Tucker Carlson. And he always says crazy shit on, on TV. And back in 2014, he was also threatening, you know, to turn that Russia could turn the West into a pile of radioactive ash, blah, blah, blah. But this time he said something that really struck with me. He said, you know, we have this many submarines and they can fire this many nuclear warheads and destroy this many countries, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, and we'll do it too, because we're operating from a premise that what is the point of the world existing if there's no Russia in it? And I don't think that came scripted to him from the Kremlin, but I'm sure the Kremlin did not mind. And I, I think that's kind of how Putin feels right now. And I think that's how Stalin felt. And that's how Hitler felt. And that's how all these psycho fucks feel. What is the point of the world if I'm not in it? And he sees, I mean, this has been going on since 2015. There's been this constant equivalence made between Russia and Putin. Russia is Putin and Putin is Russia. And again, going back to my earlier point, he cannot lose this war. It would be such a humiliation. It would be like the U.S. military, in his mind, getting beaten by like the military of Guatemala. You know, that would be a shame, a national embarrassment that he could not live down. And so he's going to throw everything at this. And everything might include a tactical nuclear weapon. And what happens after that? I don't know, but it is not good. I mean, we're entering, or we have entered actually, and I don't know that there's a way back. We've passed the point of no return and we've entered a whole new horrible place. People are talking about how this evo evokes memories of, of 1939 and World War II, and I agree, but there were no nuclear weapons in until the very end of World War II, and it's going to get worse. It's going to get so much worse. This is only the beginning. Well, Julia's newsletter for Puck, which you should all subscribe <laughs> to, is called Tomorrow Will Be Worse, uh, and it, it was called that before this conflict, but it I feels really especially wish, apt. I really <laughs> wish it were wrong. I wish all of this, like, I would like nothing more than to be proven wrong and for people to write in and say, Julia, you fucked up. That was totally wrong. I will gladly take it. I will gladly eat crow and eat shit and whatever. <laughs> but, I mean, this is a five-alarm fire, and the U.S. can't hide from this. It's coming to us. Yeah, and I, and I know that's that's true that you would like to be wrong because you have so many friends over there at the moment who are who are terrified. And and you're also right. It, it, we we talk about this conflict 
I feel like here in the in the U.S. news media is this playoff series or something like we're taking it day by day and like what happened overnight. And the reality is there are no I hate to use this word because it sounds like such like mumbo jumbo State Department speak, but like off ramps right now. It's just like, where does this end? I don't know. Nobody knows. And it's I mean, there are there are off ramps, right? But there are. I mean, stop the war, pull your troops back, whatever. Like, let's negotiate something. But the off ramps were much better before this started. There's no way Ukraine will agree to neutrality. Ukraine's about to get like ushered into the European Union on a fast track basis, you know, because of because of this. Uh, Finland now is banging on NATO's door and wants to join, which Russia does not want. In fact, before invading Ukraine, they also threatened Finland that they would <laughs> that there would be quote military political repercussions for Finland if it joined NATO. Russia will not back down, and I don't think the Ukrainians will by now. I mean, if you look at, for example, the the interview I published in our or I sent around, you can find it on our page at puck.news. I interviewed Mustafa Nayam, who started the revolution in 2014 and is now a deputy minister in Zelensky's government. And I asked him about these negotiations and he was like, okay, so what do you think is going to happen? They're going to withdraw their troops and then we pretend like nothing happened. Fuck that. Like they have to, they have to be punished. They have to pay for the damage they've created. They have to be completely demilitarized. Right. So this is up the stakes and the demands on all sides. And I think the off ramps were some of the infrastructure that was blown up in the last week. Um, all right, Julia, thank you so much. We will talk to you next week when hopefully everything will not be worse than it is today, but, um, fingers crossed. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Okay. Thanks so much. Thanks, Peter. Coming up, Dylan Byers will be here to talk about the one-time cable news prodigy who is now running the show at CNN. Thanks again for listening to The Powers That Be and for supporting Puck, our new company focused on the inside conversation, the plot that only the insiders know. The real story at the nexus of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. Puck's content is fantastic. Our scoops and analysis will help you understand the most important stuff happening in our culture today. And when you subscribe to Puck, you're supporting our great team, empowering us to do the work that really matters to grow our business and pave a path for a new media model. So check us out at puck.news. Welcome back, everybody, to The Powers That Be. I'm joined by our media expert, Dylan Byers, who has been leading the charge on the succession drama at CNN, who will replace Jeff Zucker. And Dylan broke the news that we finally have an answer. So, Dylan, who will be replacing Jeff Zucker as the head of the cable news network? Chris Licht. Who's that? Wonderkind. Wonderkind (laughs) executive producer. You, uh, our listeners will know Chris Licht from the early days of MSNBC's Morning Joe, which he helped co-found, uh, and he was the inaugural executive producer there. The What I would consider to be probably the best days of CBS this morning, which is when you had uh, the likes of Charlie Rose, Gail King, Nora O'Donnell, uh, sitting around the table in the morning doing a, a more serious morning news show than than either Today's Show or Good Morning America. And then now the late show with Stephen Colbert, which has sort of emerged as the leader in late night 
thanks in part, I think, to sort of serving as a, a to, to the credit of Stephen Colbert, but then I also I think is sort of becoming a home for unabashed mockery of Trump and the GOP and everything that's uh, wrong with Washington. And look, he's he, his reputation is well known in the business. He is a he's an excellent executive producer. He is incredible at nurturing talent like Jeff Zucker, some would argue. What he does not have, and I think where that where people are sort of waiting to see whether or not he's going to be biting off more than he can chew, is is he capable of running a big 24-hour global news business, uh, which is something he's never done before. And it's much different to sort of executive produce a late-night show or a morning show than it is to run the entire an entire cable news operation. David Zaslav knows him, has known him for 15 years, uh, trusts him, thinks he has the right instincts, so much so, in fact, that David Zaslav didn't even talk to anyone else about the position. He just sort of went ahead and gave it to Chris Licht. Is that right? I was I was, I was, was curious about that, if, if Zaslav talked to anyone inside CNN to promote internally or... or Outside yeah, and the answer is no. I mean, he might, he might have, uh, he might have had some, some sort of uh, low-key conversations with folks uh, with with the interim leadership or some members of the interim leadership, but the people inside the building who thought they might have a shot at the job, Andrew Morse, maybe a Virginia Mosley, like he never even talked to those people. The veterans of the news business, David Rhodes, Ben Sherwood, never talked to those people. He just went to Chris Licht and gave him the job. And I think you can see that as the favorable view would be David Zaslav is a bold and decisive leader who knows what he wants. The unfavorable view would be he didn't go through the the usual process and the sort of HR background checks and the vetting that usually, not always, but often happens uh, when you're making such a significant hire. So now, so it's because it's sort of weird. We're basically at this moment where we reported this news on Saturday morning. And in the first 48 hours, I think there was a feeling, especially among folks, talent at CNN. Well, this is great. We've got somebody who knows how to executive produce, who knows how to nurture the talent. This is a decision we're comfortable with. But I think, you know, since the since Discovery sort of formally announced the decision, I think now the second wave of emotions is, well, is this guy cut out for the job and can he do the whole thing? And and should David Zaslav have done a little bit of more research before picking? And I think, you know, I think we just have to wait and see what Chris Lick does with his new toy. So I want to get into a couple things. What does this mean for CNN's editorial direction? What does it mean for certain hosts and reporters at CNN? But Another media reporter DM me the other day, just sort of trying to pick my brain as a former CNN person. Like, why do you think they went with Chris Licht? And I just, you know, first of all, I would never give anything uh, insightful to a media reporter other than you. But my response was not knowing much else. It seems like Zaslav wanted somebody who could live in the space between news and he has news experience, but also entertainment because CNN does have to build and sustain CNN Plus, their new streaming platform, and, and build out non-news programming for that. And so, you know, we, we pretend cable news is not, but it is at the intersection of, <laughs> of journalism and entertainment. <laughs> and, yes. and here's a guy who has lived, lived in that intersection. And quite frankly, maybe for David Zaslav, like someone who feels slightly bigger and more well-connected in the entertainment 
you know, Hollywood yeah. universe than just a traditional news person. I, right. And I think that's right. And, and that's, that's definitely a piece of this, right? Is that CNN is bigger than the news. It is also, you know, the original series and the documentaries and, and CNN plus, which we now know is going to include in addition to news programming, a cooking show and travel shows and things like that. So I think he'll be really good in that regard. At the same time, the signal that Chris Licht and David Zaslav have sent on Monday when they made this news official is that they are going to be getting, that CNN is going to be getting back to its hard news roots and that that is, you know, echoing the sentiments of John Malone several months ago. This feeling that like the sort of grandstanding resistance journalism of the Zucker Trump era that we are moving on from that. And so I think I think there are a lot of people, media reporters, who have looked at that and said, okay, so CNN is now pivoting back to hard news. I would caution a couple of things. One is, to your point, this remains a, this is still a talent-driven business. And indeed, what has been core to Chris Lick's playbook at every stop along the way is you get these big-name talents, or potentially big-name talents, and you build, you let them be human. They're not just, you know, people in suits reading the news like television of, of decades ago. You, you, you let them be who they are and you let them be outspoken. True for Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski. True for, to an extent for Gail King, Nora O'Donnell and, and Charlie Rose. And then certainly true for Stephen Colbert in Late Night. Let them show their human side. And that is something that I think the talent at CNN, talent that might want to come to CNN, has grown very accustomed to. So we're not moving away entirely from that personality-driven, somewhat opinionated programming, even if there is an emphasis on hard news. That's number one. Two, I would just say that it's a unique turn of events that following Jeff Zucker's ouster, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has happened. And so we have had this opportunity to see CNN go all in on what it has historically done best, which is global news gathering during major breaking news events. And I think a lot of people are saying, well, that's, you know, somewhat fortuitous because that is what that is the CNN that that David Zaslav wants. And that's the CNN that's that Chris Licht is going to program. What I would caution there is a couple things. One, major European land wars happen about once every 75 years. God willing. Uh, two, that kind of reporting is really, really expensive. And nothing, despite all the changes happening at CNN, nothing about the business has changed. Linear television is in decline. The business model is under threat. And no one has figured out exactly what news, what the news business looks like in streaming yet. And so the model of putting people around a desk and having them talk and share their opinions is much, much cheaper than sending people into harm's way all over the world. And I think that I don't think that all of a sudden, because of this change in leadership, because of what's going on in Ukraine, that now CNN is going to go directly back into reports from from correspondents all over the world 24 hours a day. I do still think that some of what we see and have seen at CNN for the last few years is what we're going to continue to see, even if we lose some of that sort of grandstanding, you know, opinionating from the likes of, you know, the Chris Cuomo's, the Brianna Keeler's, the Jim Acosta's. Yes. And you, you brought up two things that I, I want to talk about a little more. First is that Chris Licht, after 
getting a pretty solid reputation in television news at Morning Joe, took over CBS this morning with Charlie Rose, Gail King, Nora O'Donnell. At the time, those three anchors and hosts, when they were assembled, it felt unusual. It felt like, is there going to be chemistry here? And while CBS has never really been able to overtake NBC and ABC in the in the morning show game, that's always been true. They did create an identity and a reputation as the most serious of the uh, morning news shows in that they would talk about serious news issues and what was happening in Washington. They'd go a little more in depth and not just do the fluff. But at the same time, they did lean into human interest and entertainment. It was, in other words, it was a good mix of stories while being able to maintain its brand reputation and point of view as the most trusted morning show. And so like that feels like a path forward for CNN, just in terms of what editorially the network can be. And then the second thing you mentioned, and I'm glad you brought this up, is I agree with you. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is something that doesn't happen every day and it's expensive and they might not go to their foreign correspondence all the time after this dies down or fades and it might go on for years. We have to we have to consider that. But it does serve as a reminder that CNN is bigger than Jeff Zucker and all of the totally woe is me whining and complaining and and sorrow from CNN reporters, staffers, anchors that leaked out after Jeff was fired. You know, you and I talked about this. I talked about this with my friends at CNN. Like CNN will continue. CNN existed for a very long time before Jeff Zucker. CNN will exist after him, maybe not in the way that it did in the Ted Turner era. But, you know, they have an amazing platoon of correspondence over there. Clarissa Ward, right. Alex Marquardt, Matthew Chance got an interview with President Zelensky in his his bunker the other day. I mean, they are really leading the other cable news channels here. And CNN's slogan for a little while, still sort of, was go there. And during the Zucker years, even though they said go there, rarely did they actually go there. No, they, they didn't went go there. to the panel in, <laughs> in the green room and the, the studios and the political debates. They went to the Republican National Convention. Yeah, sure. But they're going not to the convention in Cleveland. They're going <laughs> overseas, which is, you know, really, really their strength and and sending their correspondence over there, too. I mean, Aaron Burnett did a really moving piece the other night about refugee movements out of the country to the West. They just sent Anderson Cooper over there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it's just it's just a reminder that. This place has muscle, uh, this place has resources, and this place can uh, get back to, back to journalism. That's absolutely right. And it has been, I think, really actually refreshing to see what, you know, well, well in D.C. and New York, the, the sort of CNN faces who we've grown very accustomed to during the Zucker era are still sort of pulling their hair out over his loss you are seeing the the Clarissa Wards and the Matthew Chances and, and even Anderson Cooper, who, by the way, was notably not audible during the Zucker stuff. Just go to work and just do the work. And that has been, I think, extremely refreshing. It sounds like you, certainly I know of myself, this is the kind of CNN I really love. The CNN that basically brings you in touch with the rest of the world. But we should we should just never forget, I think, as we think about what the next few years look like, that that is a very, very expensive and costly business. And so I think when David Zaslav and Chris Licht say in their statements, we're so proud and so impressed by what CNN has done in Ukraine, and we want to 
double down on that. I think they mean that. I think that they are going to feel a different set of emotions when they actually get inside the building and have a chance to look at the the PNL and the costs required to do that sort of journalism. And hopefully that is a journalism that they will continue to invest in and sustain. But again, I do think that we are still going to have a lot of people sitting around desks sharing their sharing their opinions and analysis. One thing I want to ask you to confirm is um, Mike Allen for Axios wrote a piece this week that said, scoop CNN to dull its liberal edge. Uh, and you, I mean, you you basically have been talking about this in this conversation. For six months. But that, yeah, I know, I know. But it said that. Uh, David Zaslov, quote, wants to move CNN back to the middle. That's true. Are these leaks? Are these stories? Are th- is this coming from the top? Yeah. So he- here is what I have been writing about for several months before John Malone made his comments, before David Zaslov indicated on Monday that he really wanted to invest in news. And I think now I can confidently say that it reflects the way that David Zaslov thinks about it. The value of CNN, which is a 10 to $15 billion brand, is not derived from whether or not it beats MSNBC in the ratings on a Tuesday night. It is not derived from whether or not it captures the cultural zeitgeist among a certain part of America as the resistance network to Donald Trump. It does not rest in its ability to turn... Don Lemon or Chris Cuomo to get, you know, to turn them into household names. The value of that brand comes from the fact that when Russia invades Ukraine, when a bomb goes off, when an election happens, no one has the correspondent core, the news gathering prowess, the infrastructure, and the know how required to, in your words, go there and do the news around the clock the way that they do it. And I think it was the feeling of. Some people, certainly John Malone, probably David Zaslav, that in programming for these short-term ratings gains the way that Jeff Zucker did and turning CNN into a sort of resistance network against Trump and and his supporters in in the GOP and at Fox News, that whatever benefit, short-term benefit CNN may have got from that that the long-term risk to the brand and to the integrity of the brand as a serious, nonpartisan, global news organization came under threat. And that's not just Jeff Zucker's fault. Part of the That's part of the fault of Donald Trump, who railed against the media and railed against CNN and sort of didn't leave Jeff Zucker with a lot of great options. But that brand, that integrity is what makes CNN valuable from a not not just from like a moral perspective but from a business perspective to the discovery the Warner Brothers discovery portfolio. And so especially once you get into the streaming business and you move away from all the like the the economics of the linear business that is the value proposition because people are going to get their entertainment and their sports and all of that other stuff their scripted programming from all of the other things that Warner Brothers Discovery has to offer. So what CNN needs to do is it needs to be that thing that is almost synonymous with news itself, which is what it was for a long time, which is what it, I would argue continues to be globally, which is what has been on display in the last week, week since Russia invaded Ukraine. And so I think that when people, Mike Allen, when anyone else talks about tacking back toward the center or going back towards hard news, that is what they're talking about. But... 
there is still room in that landscape for shows that are built around big egos and big brands who want to show their personality and their human side. They just have to do it in a way that doesn't make them look like they are being overwhelmingly partisan or overwhelmingly liberal. Dylan, I want to ask you one more thing before I let you go. Chris Lick sent a memo to CNN employees uh, earlier this week. You mentioned that uh, before. And he said these words, quote, I look forward to getting to know all of you and hearing your candid thoughts and feedback. Our viewers demand the truth from us, and I want to learn the truth from you. Together, we will double down on what's working well and quickly eliminate what's not. I know you have a lot of questions. Perhaps the biggest one is how will CNN change? The honest answer is that I don't know yet. Uh, end quote. So this might be getting too far ahead because Licht hasn't even stepped in as a, a leader here. But can you tell us anything that specifically will change? Any shows, any talent, any investments? Or is it too early to tell uh, what will will change at CNN? No, I do, I, the truth is I don't know. I, I think that I, I truly I think he's being genuine when he says he actually needs to get in and look look at what's happening and, and see what's working and what's not. Will Jim Acosta be given license to like stand up in the White House briefing room and and, you know, <laughs> grandstand? No, I'm guessing that I'm guessing Chris Licht will have a pretty low tolerance for that. Will Don Lemon be able to go sort of like off the cuff and, and get really impassioned about something? I don't know. Maybe if it if it's not if it's not about an issue that's too overwhelmingly biased from a political perspective, maybe there still will be room for that. I'm more interested in who Chris Licht is going to go after on the outside. I think, you know, does the conversation about Brian Williams going back into television news happen when you're talking about, you know, sort of tacking back toward the center? I mean, even when Brian Williams on his last night at MSNBC talked about how he wasn't really a partisan, but that he believed in America. Nora O'Donnell, who who Chris Licht worked with at, at CBS News, could she come over? Jen Psaki, who, as I reported last week, is being courted by both CNN and MSNBC. Does this make CNN more interesting to her than it was back when, you know, there, there was a sort of leadership vacuum? Those things all interest me immensely. And I think that the North Star for CNN is doing what they've been doing this week, coupled with nonpartisan personality driven programming. Now, how can you be how can you be nonpartisan and, and personality driven at the same time? That'll be interesting to see in a news environment. But I'm excited to see what he does. And I am, you know, I, I say it in an article published today, like I'm I'm bullish on him. He has a lot of a lot of fans in this business and for good reason. He's been successful in what he's done. And so I, I understand and respect David Zaslov's decision, even if it was a ballsy one. Yeah, a friend of mine, mentor of mine Michelle Giacconi, who used to work at, at CNN with me, is now at the Washington Post doing really cool stuff with with video. We were talking one time when we were working there, and, and CNN always gets criticism. And I forget if this was before Jeff came in or after Jeff came in, but she said, you know, a lot of people criticize CNN and throw darts at CNN, but imagine a world without CNN. And, and that's sort of like what I have always thought about in the years when CNN, to me, felt a little more you know, nakedly partisan and ostentatious uh, rather than, you know, the essential journalism that we need. And like you, I, I'm excited about the Licht choice. I mean, it, it does feel like he can be a, a good leader to step in here and, and he cares about journalism, but he also understands it's business. <laughs> and yeah. I, I'm like you, I'm excited about it. So 
I will look forward to more of your reporting. You have, we're recording this on Wednesday, so you still have two more days to break a bunch of stories. So um, uh, I'm depending <laughs> on you. I'll do my best. All right. Have a good weekend, Dylan. Thanks, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Eric Johnson of lightningpod.fm, our partner, for his support. And thanks, too, to Liz Goff and Ben Landy for their production help. I'm Peter Hamby, and I will see you next week.